Good morning. Good to see everybody. Good to be with you in this place this morning. Today we are um, starting a new chapter in our Romans series. So if you brought your Bibles with you, you can turn to Romans chapter 13. In your bulletin there in the top of the notes under the title, it says that this is Romans part 31, but it's actually part 41, misprint there. 41 weeks we have been in Romans now, which is about 10 months, which compared to some preachers, that's moving pretty quick through Romans. At least Charles Spurgeon went through the book of Romans and he did it in six years. So uh, I'm not quite at the level of Spurgeon, so you're going to have to settle for the 10-month version up to this point. But who knows? Get through the rest of the... We still got... More chapters to go. may take us five years to get through the rest of it. have no idea. <laughs> but it's going to be good. I know that. Uh, Romans chapter 13. going to start in verse 1. Let's all stand together as we <clears throat> receive the word that the Lord has for us today. Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing." For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word today. And uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the truth in this, that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive this truth and uh, renew our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, this message today is going to be a little different than uh, what you're usually accustomed kind of message you're accustomed to hearing me preach, but I do believe that this is something that God uh, directed me to talk about this morning, and this text today is very timely considering the times that we are living in right now and the fact that we are in the midst of probably one of the most crucial presidential elections, uh, arguably, in the history of our nation. There is much talk right now about the role of government. And because of the way that our government has been here in this country, the word government has come to, to be a bad word for many people in the church. We all have our own views of government, but what we need to do is have God's view of it. I mean, we just came out of Romans chapter 12, which at the beginning tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we will know what the will of God is, so that we will be able to see things the way that God sees them. And I believe it is especially important for us at this time in our history to be able to see government the way that God does. 
Now, for many people today, even on both sides of the partisan aisle, their attitude towards government has pretty much been that this is an institution of Satan himself. But the truth is, it is actually an institution that God has established. I mean, we see that right here in this text. Verse 1, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And the way that God has established government actually has his divine imprint on it. What do I mean by that? Well, government is just one of several institutions that God has established and has designed them in such a way that they reflect his very nature. They have his imprint on them. There is a diagram in your notes there that illustrates what I'm going to talk about here. And at the very top of it there, we see uh, an illustration of the nature of God as as uh, multifaceted and as huge and as uh, other than that God is, this is, uh, to say the least, a very simplistic way of illustrating the nature of God here. He exists in three entities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united as one. And within that relationship, uh, there are different roles that scriptures say that, that each of these uh, persons of God plays. The Father delegates authority to the Son. The Son submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit carries out the will of the Father and the Son. And when you read the verses in the Bible that talks about these relationships here, you're going to find some key words in that. Words like authority and submission and obedience and honor. These words describe the nature of God. Now, the world has distorted these things and uh, have, have turned them into uh, bad words. A lot of these words here have, have negative connotations for a lot of people. And some of us have bought into the lie of the world that says these things are bad, especially with the words like authority and submission. But these things can't be bad because they're actually part of the very nature of God. And everything that is in God is good. And they are things that when used according to God's design actually are intended to lead us into pure joy. Authority that God has established is there to lead us into joy. Submission, when it is done in a godly way, submission leads us to pure joy. But of course, just like man does, he takes anything good, anything that is of God and distorts it and perverts it and abuses it. And we have done that with these things. And so some people have a very negative connotation when it comes to authority and submission. But we need to have our minds renewed to be able to see that these things are actually good because they are things that are actually in and come from God. And so God has created certain institutions that reflect this, that, that reflect his nature and his character and have this imprint on him. And one of those, as an example, is the institution of the family. In the family, we have the triune nature of the father and the mother and the children united as one family. Now, the roles between each of these reflect the roles in the nature of God. 
The father has been delegated authority as the spiritual leader of the family. The mother is is called to submit to the father and the children are called to obey and honor the parents. And you can find those roles spelled out in in detail in Ephesians chapter 5. And there we see those key words again that we also see in the nature of God. Another example is the institution of the church. Colossians 1.18 says that Christ is the head of the church. Under Jesus, authority has been delegated to elders, the leaders in a church body. And under the elders, you have the people, the congregation. Hebrews 13.17 says to church members, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Again, God's imprint the delegation of authority, obedience, submission. And we find this same pattern, this same imprint in the institution of government, what I'll also refer to as the state. Romans 13 starts off, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. So in the institution of the state, God is the ultimate authority there. And he has delegated authority to the, the, the governing entities there. With Just for simplicity's sake, on our diagram, we'll call the king. And that could include a king, a president, uh, a congress, a governor, um, uh, law enforcement, anything like that that carries governmental authority. And under them are the people whom we are called to Uh, submit to and obey those in governmental leadership. And we see those key words again. And so now you can see why verse 2 makes sense when it says whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God. Because if you rebel against that, you are rebelling against the very nature, the reflection of the nature of God himself. Now, how far our submission goes to those governing authorities That's something that we're actually going to look at later. And I know that's something that's talked about and something that we're going to have to decide how far that actually goes, especially in the way that things are are headed in our country today. But what I want to look at today, partly, is what exactly is the role of government or what should it be? This is a big issue in our nation today, and it's basically the difference between the two political parties. And if you boil it down to the essential elements, there's one party that thinks the government should have a bigger role in our lives, and the other party thinks that the government should have a smaller role. But what is the role of government from God's perspective? We find that here in verse 4 of this text. Look at it again. It says, For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the next point in your notes, the role of government is to punish evil and condone good. Now hold that thought right there because we're going to come back to it in just a second. I want us to look at these three institutions again. So RJ, if you would put those back up on the screen. Now because we live in a broken world, these things are not going to function at all times the way they are designed to. And most of the, or generally all the problems that we face in our society 
are a direct result of these, when these institutions start operating outside of the bounds which God has set and established. For instance, let's take the family as an example. When the woman starts asserting authority over her husband and the husband takes on a role of being more submissive to his, his wife and passive, all sorts of chaos ensues in the house. There's going to be some serious friction in the marriage relationship and the children are going to grow up more than likely with some um, uh, behavioral and, and emotional problems. There are many families today that are completely out of order because they have essentially allowed the children to run the home. And they are at the center of everything. And not only has God assigned specific tasks to each of these roles, but Scripture also says specific genders for each one. The man has been created to be the father and the husband. The woman has been created to be the mother and the wife. If you get that messed up and you have two men or two women, you have completely distorted the reflection of God's image that it was tend uh, to do. Now let's look at how the church can err in the same way. An unhealthy and dysfunctional church is one where the congregation, the people, essentially make all the decisions and do, basically run the church. Every decision that a church has to make about things is brought before the congregation and they vote on it. That is an example of taking our American way of doing things and applying it to the church. That is not a biblical way for a church to function. That is strictly an American way for a church to function. But a church that is run primarily by just one pastor, one man, is equally as dysfunctional and out of order. It is unbiblical for just one singular man to lead a church body and make all the decisions on behalf of it. Scripture shows that a church should be led by a plurality of elders. Now, I have been involved in both kinds of churches, one where the congregation runs the church and one where just one man runs the church, and I can tell you that they were both an absolute mess. You know when a church is out of order. We also run into problems when any of these institutions begin taking on responsibilities that has not been assigned to it by God. For example, the Bible teaches that responsibility to teach children about the ways of God and His Word, that responsibility falls primarily on the parents. But many families today have pawned that responsibility off to the church. And they expect children's ministers and youth pastors to be the primary teachers of the things of God to their children. When I was a youth pastor for 11 years, there was one point where God really convicted me of the fact that I was um, really operating my role in many ways outside of the bounds that God had established me to be. And in many ways, I was trying to take the place of some of the parents of the children in my youth group. And God led me to the scripture in Malachi 4.6 that says one of the implications of the gospel is that he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. 
And the Lord showed me, this is what you need to be focusing on, Jason. Your role is to support that, to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers and vice versa. But you have been trying to turn the hearts of the children to you. And I was like, wow, you're right, God, I have. And that is not my role. That is an example of the church taking on responsibilities that has not been assigned to it, that has been reserved for the family. There are examples of the church, or those are examples of the church assuming those kind of responsibilities, but mistakes can be made vice versa too. There are some families that just strictly stay to themselves and don't have any other interaction with believers outside of their family, and they look as their family as their church involvement. Essentially, their family is their church. But God has not designed the family to be the church. He has designed the church to be the church. And so that's an example of trying to make the family take on responsibilities that has not been assigned to it. So many of the problems in our society today are a result of these institutions operating outside the bounds, God has said, and, and taking on responsibilities that God has not ordained for it. And I would say that today, next to the breakdown of the family, the government is probably the biggest culprit. We have allowed the government, the state, to take on roles and responsibilities that God has not ordained for it to take. I mean, just last year, it assumed the authority that it has not been given by God to redefine the definition of marriage essentially redefine the definition of family. You know, we hear a lot about the separation of church and state. What we don't hear a lot about, what we probably should be hearing more about, especially from us, is the separation of family and state. The state has no right asserting its authority and into roles that have specifically been assigned to the family. Now, speaking of the separation of church and state, the truth is God has set a boundary there, but it's not a separation the way that it is usually talked about today. There are boundaries that God has established between those two institutions, but that only limits their specific areas of jurisdiction and responsibility. I mean, the church has not been ordained by God to run the affairs of the government. And the government has not been ordained by God to run the affairs of the church. You know, there was a time in this nation where that distinct separation was recognized. If uh, back in the pioneer days or the days of the Wild West, if you had a group of Texas Rangers who were chasing after an outlaw, and they were getting right up on him, and that outlaw jumped off of his horse and ran into a church building, those Texas Rangers would not go into that church to get that outlaw. Why? Because they recognized that their jurisdiction as an agent of the government stopped at the front step of that church. They did not have authority to that that was inside the realms of church. And so they wouldn't go in there and get him. Mind how times have changed today. But the problem today is that the separation of church and state has been distorted and taken so far to really mean the separation of God altogether and state. 
And when that happens, it can no longer function the way that it was designed to. The institution of government can only work properly when God is recognized as having the ultimate authority there. And that has to happen in order for the state to be just in exercising the authority that it has been given. Let's look at that. Verse 4 again says that of the state that it does not bear the sword for nothing. God has delegated the power of the sword to the state. What is the sword used for? To punish evil. And so that means the government carries an extremely heavy weight of responsibility. If it carries the responsibility of the sword, it better be able to discern the difference between what is good and what is evil. Because it has been given that extreme uh, heavy weight of the responsibility to do so. The next point. To bear the sword in a just way, you have to know the difference between good and evil. But how is that going to be decided? Well, who is the ultimate decider of what's good and what's evil? God is. I mean, he's the one that defines that. And so if the state removes God, it no longer has the proper reference to be able to discern what is truly good and what is truly evil. And if it doesn't have that basis, then it becomes the ultimate decider of that. And the only thing that it will then deem to be good is only those things that it thinks is good for it. And all throughout history, we see examples of what eventually happens when the state removes God and decides for itself the difference between good and evil. And history is absolutely bathed in the blood of millions and millions of people who have come under the edge of the sword, all in the name of the good of the state. I'm telling you. The more that we remove God from government here, the more we are headed in that same direction. That is the inevitable consequence of going in that direction. I'm sure you noticed here that the scope of responsibility that God has assigned to the state, to the government, is actually very small. Nowhere in here do you see the responsibility of taking care of the poor, Educating the children, seizing private property, creating jobs, or establishing wages. Or a myriad of other responsibilities that the government has assumed for itself today. Another institution that God has established that also reflects his nature the way these other examples I showed is the institution of labor. An economy, I'm not going to go into a diagram of that, but it has been assigned responsibilities reserved just for it that the government has no right to assert its authority in. You know, you keep hearing these candidates that are running for president saying, I promise I'm going to create jobs when I'm president. It is not the role of the government to create jobs. The role of the government is to bear the sword in such a way that it creates and maintains a healthy environment in order for jobs to exist and to flourish. The responsibility of taking the poor and the needy, 
We talked about that two weeks ago. That responsibility has been assigned directly by God to the church, to his people. We talked about how the church here has gladly pawned that one off to the government. The next point, the more God is removed from government, the more responsibility it begins to assume for itself. And when it does that, it essentially takes the place of God. The state increasingly becomes the savior of the poor, the one who's going to take care of us and look out for us. And then when that happens, the people begin to turn their eyes away from God and turn them to the state. Psalm 121, 1 and 2 says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 37, 39, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in times of trouble, not the government. God is. Now, there are many people today who have such a disdain for government that they don't think, they say Christians shouldn't have anything to do with any aspect of government at all. But that's not true because even though it may be out of order, it is still an institution that has been established by God. And we, as people of God, have every right to utilize it in the way that God has designed for it to be utilized by us. Verse 3 says, it is a minister of God for your good. How does God use the government to minister to his people? Not by it giving out free stuff. I'll just tell you that right now. Just like I pointed out pretty much in everything that we've read in Romans, you have to keep in mind the context of any of the verses that we are reading. And this is one of those texts that we tend to compartmentalize and treat it as a completely separate topic. It's as if uh, Paul switched gears here between chapter 12 and 13 and, and went on to talking about another issue. But remember, Paul did not separate his letter between chapters and verses. The only pause that would have happened between chapter 12 and 13, if there was any pause at all, would have been a pause just long enough for dip his quill into the pot of ink and keep on writing. The verses in chapter 13 are a continuation of the verses in chapter 12. The end of chapter 12, remember as we looked at last week, tells us how a Christian should respond to interpersonal conflict. And some of the things it says are not very easy at all. Things like bless those who curse you and be at peace with all men and don't pay back evil with evil and don't take your own revenge. These things challenge us to be exceedingly gracious to those who wrong us, to those who offend us, in the hopes that our kindness would be used to awaken that person to the realities of Christ and bring them to repentance. But the question is, is that all we can do? Does there come a point where a Christian needs to be more assertive? Or should we just roll over and let people just pour out all kinds of abuse against us and turn our cheek time after time after time. Well, if we stop with Romans 12 
and view chapter 13 as a completely different subject that Paul has transitioned to, then it seems like the Christian response to abuse time after time should be a response of total passivity. It would seem that Christians should, should never defend themselves or take action against anyone. And this is why it is vital to understand that Paul was writing a letter and not a daily devotional. Paul's next words after be exceedingly gracious are God has placed civil authorities over our lives as an expression of his hand of protection. So what does that mean? It means that a battered wife can go to the authorities and get a restraining order against her abuser without violating chapter 12. It means that she doesn't have to sit there and take it time after time. But she can go to the authorities and turn him over to God's hand and let the heavy hand of the state come down on that coward. It means that you can press charges against someone who has committed a crime against you and not be worried about violating the verses at the end of chapter 12. Here's the only difference between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. It's the next point in your notes. Romans 12, 14 through 21 is how a Christian should deal with personal offenses. Romans 13, 1 through 4 is how a Christian can deal with legal offenses. Christians don't have to just sit there and let people run all over us. God has established the institution of government for us so that we would have somewhere to turn when the offense is much too big for us to handle on just a personal level. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then Paul goes right into chapter 13 and tells us how God does that. Look at the end of verse 4. For it is a minister of God, an avenger. Don't take your own revenge, but God has established government to be an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Where is that? The federal government. It's an avenger of God for his wrath. They both go together there. Look at verse 18 again of chapter 12. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now notice here that it says, if it's possible. That tells me that there may be times where it is not possible. And then he says, so far as it depends on you. It depends on you when the offense is personal. But if the offense goes beyond that into the realm of what is illegal, then there are times where it no longer depends on you and you can turn that over then to the governing authorities. Now, don't get me wrong. Do not take this as a reason for Christians to be lawsuit happy. Oh, Jason said, we can turn this over to the government authorities. Man, that's illegal. I'm going to go sue them. No. 
This is when you have done all you can with the end of chapter 12. And the only recourse then is to go to chapter 13. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. You see, there seems to be two main things that God uses to awaken a person to his reality, draw them to him, and bring them to repentance. This is the last thing in your notes. One of those ways that God does this is through the grace of a Christian. There have been so many who have been absolutely blown away by the grace that has been shown to them by someone they have wronged. A grace that they know that they don't deserve. But God used that to break their hearts and bring them to repentance and a relationship with Christ. But in other cases, if that doesn't do it, then God can also use the severity of the state. I've talked to so many people, and I'm sure you have too, people who have been incarcerated either in jail for a time or spent some time in prison. And they have said that they believe that is the greatest thing that has ever happened to them. And they've gone so far as to say, you know what, that was God's hand of mercy in my life. That was God's grace in my life to stop me from going down the road that I was on. And it is the very thing that led me into a relationship with him. You see, anytime we talk about grace, we think grace always has to be this warm, fuzzy stuff. All this kindness and and love for you and you and you. God's grace comes in many different forms. It can be the tender, loving part of grace, but it can also be the harsh hand of God that he can use through the state. It's still grace because it is God intervening in somebody's life as an act of love to bring them to him. It is exactly what verse 4 says it is, a minister of God for their good. So this morning, I just wanted us to see at least part of God's perspective on government, especially considering, like I said, the times that we are living in, because it's easy to get swayed by the things that you hear out in the world, the things that you hear on radio or what other people are saying. But as Christians, we should always, always base our views not on what Trump says, not on what Cruz says, Not on what Bernie says, not on what Hillary says, not on what Rush and Glenn Beck say, but on what God says. That's where we're able to go to. That's what is supposed to be our standard. Next week, we're going to look at this just a little more. We're going to finish up this text where he talks about the state. And I'll try to address some of the questions that come from that, especially if the government gets too far out of hand, what is a Christian's role in that whole submission thing then? Um, It's going to be good. So come back next week. Let's pray. God, I do thank you so much that you have not left us in this world on our own to just flail around and try to figure things out for ourselves. But you have given us a standard. 
God, you have given us your word. It is so precious. We would be completely lost without it. God, we know that not everyone follows it. Not everyone believes it. Lord, I'm praying that as a church family, we would be. We would be the people that follow it. We would be the people that believe in it so much and trust it so much. And it's just a natural part of the way that we live. God, once again, I ask that you would instill in us a hunger for your word that just can't seem to be ever satisfied. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to take the truth that you have placed here. Begin speaking to people through that, Lord. Just transform our hearts. Would you renew our minds in ways that only your truth can do that. Holy Spirit, you've been with us here so strong today. And I thank you for that. I pray that you would just continue to move among us and in us and through us. And just glorify Jesus. Jesus, we love you and everything we do here is for your glory. It's in your name, the name above all names. We pray these things and we come to you. Amen.